Well, I invite you to remain standing and turn with me, if you will, in God's word to Ruth chapter 4. Uh, Ruth chapter 4, we're going to read verses 13 through 22. If you're using one of the church's Bibles, you'll find that on page 224. Beloved congregation, this is our God's word that he's given to us that we might know him and we might know his love and his grace. And so please give your uh, undivided attention to the reading of it. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse... Fathered David. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us ask his blessing on our time uh, in his word this morning. Our gracious Father, you know our hearts, you know our minds, and you know how we struggle to believe your words of comfort. Father, we confess that we are quicker to believe the enemy's lies than your truth often. And if we're honest, your grace sometimes sounds foreign to our selfishness, beyond the realm of possible, that your word simply sounds too good to be true. Help us not to judge you as if we were the standard. Help us to judge our doubts and our fears according to your word. Open our eyes, open our hearts, and open our minds, we pray, to just how high and inexhaustible your grace truly is. Do this, we ask, as we open your word. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever noticed uh, how older people, probably venturing into dangerous territory here, but fools rush in, Have you ever noticed how older people tend to either be really gentle and patient and kind or really not, uh, tend to be jaded and bitter? There doesn't seem to be a lot of middle ground. As people get older, they tend to go down one of two roads. They either get gentler, kinder, and more patient, or they, well... (laughs) become very hard to be around. And I think it's because life has a funny way of not going the way we expect. When you're young, you have all sorts of dreams about the future. 
whom you are going to marry, what kind of job you'll have, how amazing your family will be. But reality has a way of struggling to keep up with our dreams. And so you get married, but you realize you've married a sinner who lets you down, who hurts you, maybe even worse. You have kids, and you try to be a good parent, but you fail in so many ways. And even when you don't, your kids get angry with you. Your job isn't what you expected. It's hard, it's frustrating, it's unfulfilling. And then for good measure, your boss seems to blame you for everything. Life seldom lives up to our dreams. And the line between dreams and expectations is often thin, sometimes too thin. And when reality does not live up to our dreams, our expectations, we feel let down. We feel let down by our spouse. We feel let down by our children. We feel let down by our boss. And we feel let down by our God. And today we want to look at the life of Naomi from the book of Ruth. Uh, Naomi's story is a common one. Uh, Reality doesn't meet expectations. One disappointment after another. And her response is a lot like that of others. Anger, resentment, and bitterness. None of which is surprising. What's surprising in this story is God's response, because it's not what we expect. It's not what Naomi deserves. It's beautiful, and it's glorious, and it's important. Each December, people all over the world celebrate Jesus' birth. They acknowledge that pivotal moment in history when the God who created all things, the uncreated God, became man was born of a virgin, entered into his own creation and walked among us for 33 years. We acknowledge those facts of history. But there's more to the story than just facts. There's the reason God came into our our world. And that reason is what matters. And so for hundreds of years prior to that moment, God was preparing his people for that pivotal moment so that they would know what he was doing when it happened. And so for a while now, each December, I've chosen one of those passages in the Old Testament that God gave to his people to prepare them for that coming so that we might better understand why Jesus came into this world. Today we're going to look at the birth of a child named Obed. And how Naomi's story is meant to speak to our hearts. How her story is meant to strip back our pride and to challenge our bitterness and to comfort our hearts and our souls with God's message of love and forgiveness. What we'll see is that God overcomes our sin and our guilt and our bitterness through the gift of a child who is a servant and is a redeemer. That God overcomes these things, our guilt, our sin, our bitterness, through through a gift. And that gift is a child who is a servant, who is a redeemer. That's our goal today. Now, we opened by reading the end of the book, the climax, the end of the story, the great moment. of. uh, But if this was a, a, a movie or a TV show, that would be the teaser. 
you know, where you see a scene or a part of it that would play, and then up on the screen come the words, those predictable words, you know, 24 hours earlier, 70, or in our case, 10 years earlier. You know that you're about to go back and get the backstory that leads up to this crucial moment so that you can understand it rightly. And so we're going to go back and we're going to look at Naomi's story to see why this moment of laying this child Obed on her lap is such a big moment for the people in Bethlehem. The book opens in that little town called Bethlehem, which literally means house of bread. Bethlehem. It starts with a family, a man named Elimelech, his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion. And yet times are hard. Uh, Famine has come, and the house of bread is out of bread. It's empty. And so Elimelech and Naomi take their sons, and they go in search of food. That's not surprising. That's not a problem. We expect that the problem is where they choose to go. They go to Moab, the sworn enemies of Israel. God had given them strict instructions to have nothing to do with the Moabites. And yet something within Elimelech and Naomi tells them that this is the place to go and seek their provision. It's not hard to imagine how they might have justified their decision. Well, God hasn't provided for us. He doesn't seem to care. Why shouldn't we go to the Moabites, to the enemy? And so it should be no surprise what happens next. For what always happens when people reject God. What always happens when we place our confidence in our own wisdom and not His. What is life always like apart from God? It's terrible. It's filled with death and devastation and destruction. How could it not be? There's no safety. There's no hope apart from God. And so by the end of the third verse in chapter 1, Naomi finds herself widowed. She didn't leave her problems at Bethlehem. They, they came with her. They followed her down to Moab. Her, her husband is dead. She's far from home, far from family, far from friends. And truthfully, she's far from God. The distance between her and God has never been so great. And the question is always, how will she respond? Unfortunately, things just got worse. The cardinal rule of Israel was, do not give your sons and daughters to foreigners to marry. They will lead their hearts astray. But again, Naomi disregards God's commands. She chooses her own path apart from God's guidance And she finds Moabite wives for her two sons. And it's not long until those two sons follow their father to an early grave. Life has certainly not turned out like Naomi dreamed it would. What child dreams of growing up to be a childless widow in a foreign land? She has no one to care for her. She has no heir to whom to leave the family property. 
It will soon pass into the hands of another family, and her family's name will be lost forever and forgotten. All she has now are two Moabite daughters-in-law, reminders of her rebellion, reminders of her loss, a constant source of salt to rub in her open wounds. And again, we wonder, how will she respond to her unmet expectations? Will she be humbled? Will she be softened? Or will she grow hard and resentful and bitter? The answer comes at the end of chapter 1 when after 10 years away, she decides to go back to Bethlehem and she enters into the town and as she does, her friends and her neighbors meet her at the edge and they ask and wonder, is this Naomi? And, and yet there's, there's this dramatic power to that question in the original Hebrew that's lost in, in the English because as with most names in Hebrew, her name means something. Literally, her name is sweet or sweetness. After 10 years of rebellion and pain, she comes home angry, head hung low, and the first question out of everybody's mouth is, is that you, sweetness? How it must have hurt like a dagger. I don't have an ounce of sweetness left in me. I'm anything but sweetness. And she didn't hesitate to let them know. She says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me sweet. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me sweet when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi's response to everything that has happened is a bitter one. And she she lays the blame squarely at God's feet. God, she says, has dealt bitterly with me. God has taken everything from me. I was full, I was happy, and God has made me empty and bitter. And that word bitter is, is a powerful word. Guilt is what we feel when we have done wrong. Bitterness is what we feel when we think someone has done us wrong. Whether we have actually done wrong or not is not so important as the feeling that we've been done wrong. And it has to be personal. We don't feel bitterness about great atrocities done across the world. We feel bitterness for wrongs done to us. And the closer the relationship, the deeper the bitterness, the more we feel someone owes us, the worse it is when they fail to deliver. But often as is in the case of Naomi, bitterness is actually a disguise for guilt. When you feel guilty, you try to find some way to make yourself look like the person you have hurt is worse than you are, that you're the victim. Bitterness claims to simply be looking for justice, to be passionate about the truth, to be passionate about righteousness. Naomi's saying, I would be sweet if it wasn't for God, if he hadn't been so mean, so harsh. I've been treated unfairly. And all I want is what I'm owed. All I want is my sons, my husband, my home, my inheritance. And I'd have it all if if God hadn't been so unfair. I just want what's rightfully mine. 
but she knows the truth. Naomi knows she's anything but innocent. She told God to leave her alone, to butt out of her life, and, and now she's mad that he did. And she knows she has no one to blame but herself, but she's not yet ready to take responsibility. She's not yet ready to be honest. She blames God, thinks that it will somehow fix things. Bitterness has been described as drinking poison, expecting someone else to die. The only one she's hurting is herself. The only one she's fooling is herself. God knows the truth. He's not fooled by her tirade. He's not intimidated by her bully tactics. So what is his response? Really, that's what the book of Ruth is about. But before we we get that, we need to acknowledge that, that Naomi's story is not unique. Naomi's story is really everyone's story, corporately and individually. We go back to Adam and Eve. God made his expectations clear. Trust him for provision and don't go seeking it where he has not told you to go. Sounds a lot like the opening of Ruth. But Adam and Eve decided they knew better and they went where they had no right to go and took food to which they had no right. They told God they didn't need his provision. They'd go it alone. And then everything came crashing down around them exactly as God had warned them it would. And so what was their response? Was it humility? Was it repentance? No. Adam blamed God. You remember what Adam said? Things were great until, you know, you gave me that woman. It's really your fault, God. But God wasn't fooled and he wasn't intimidated. He didn't apologize. Job tried something similar. When his life got hard, he blamed God and said that all he wanted was what was fair. He said that he was innocent, but God wasn't. He claimed to want justice, at least until God offered it to him. And then he said, I'll be quiet now. Or who can forget Jonah? He was angry with God because God showed mercy to the Ninevites. He sat there sulking in bitterness and God asked him, do you have the right to be angry? And Jonah's response, do you remember? He told God, yes, you bet. I have a right to be angry. Blinded by bitterness, he thought that justice was on his side and not God's. And yet God wasn't fooled. God wasn't intimidated. And he didn't apologize. It was true yesterday and it's true today. It's true every day. Everywhere you look, people are trying to find fault with God. I'm sure you've heard it. Probably this week. I don't like that God brought the plagues on Egypt. I don't like that God sent his army in to to conquer those who were occupying the promised land. I don't like that he lets children die. I don't like that he gives different roles to men and to women. I don't like that he enslaves children to parents. I don't like that he demands your loyalty or sends you to hell. And the message is always the same. I'm nicer. I'm more righteous than God. All I want is what's fair and what's right. And God's not fooled. God's not intimidated. And he won't apologize. 
because he knows the truth that our bitterness like Naomi's, like Job's, like Jonah's is a thin disguise for a guilty conscience. And we think that if we can put God on the defensive, if we can find fault with him, we will somehow escape our guilty conscience. And when we see those older people who are bitter and miserable to be around, this is the road they have walked to get there. It is where it leads every time. And so the question is, what hope is there for the bitter? What can be done for a guilty conscience? What can be done for a rebellious heart? Is there redemption for someone who has the audacity to look at the God of righteousness and accuse him of evil? What hope is there for someone like Naomi, for someone like you, for someone like me? That's why the ending of the book of Ruth is so important. We know how the story begins. More than that, we can identify with how the story begins because we can see ourselves in Naomi, at least if we are remotely honest with ourselves. So how the story ends matters. Because this isn't a movie that we can just watch and then go on with our day. Our future, our hope is tied up with how God responds to Naomi. So let's go back to where it all ends. We have the backstory now. We're ready to go back to that opening scene. We've seen the tension. So the words come back up on the screen. Back in Bethlehem. Back to that moment we started with. Through a list of interventions too numerous to list out right now, God provided a husband for that widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth. She became pregnant and she had a son whom the ladies of Bethlehem give the name Obed. And you have to love the way how the story ends. It's, it's not with Ruth. Her story's amazing and it's wonderful, but it's not where the book ends. It ends where it began, with Naomi. Because that's the burning question. What's God going to do with Naomi who so boldly blamed him for everything she brought on herself? And the book ends with a child being laid on her lap. Because he will be the one to keep her and her husband's name alive. He will be the one to keep the family property in the family. He will be the one to care for her in her old age. This child rescues Naomi and her entire family line from the brink of extinction. That's an awful lot to lay on an infant, isn't it? But that's what his birth means. That's its significance. And his birth wasn't anything Naomi could have orchestrated. The remedy for Naomi's rebellion was beyond her ability. And so she's forced to see that the God whom she has turned her back on, the God she has blamed, the God she has accused of evil, that God has shown her mercy and sent her a rescuer in the gift of a child. Look what the women confess in verse 14. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. If you were Naomi, how would you hear that? How would you respond? Sitting there with your rescuer, your redeemer in your lap. 
If the God whom you had rejected, then blamed, then accused of being evil, didn't repay you according to your sin, but showed you kindness and mercy and rescued you from your own foolishness, how would you respond? I would imagine, well, I would hope, I guess, that the first thing I would feel would be guilt over all I had done. And then, awe at a kindness beyond earthly measure. Awe followed by gratitude. And eventually, I hope, I pray, humility would have to supplant my arrogance my bitterness and my futile attempts to make myself look good by looking for failures in others. And that's the point of God's kindness. To lead us to repentance. To root out our bitterness. And lead us to repentance and, and awe and gratitude. Think of the vast difference between what Naomi accused God of being and what he shows himself to actually be in this book. She accuses him of being evil and he shows himself to be wonderfully good. She accuses him of being petty, but he shows himself to be generous beyond measure. She accuses him of not being able to control himself when he doesn't get his way but he shows, him, he shows the greatest self-control imaginable by not uttering a single word when she accuses him of all sorts of evil and drags his name through the mud. She accuses him of not caring. And yet in a very real sense, he stops the entire world to come and rescue an unknown widow from a little-known town called Bethlehem. In other words, he shows himself not to be a petty tyrant, but a gracious servant. Is it any wonder then that the child would be named Obed, literally servant? Through this child born in Bethlehem, God is showing himself to be a merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love God. He's showing himself to be the hope of sinners. Through the birth of this child, that little piece of land did not pass out of Naomi and Elimelech's family, and their family name did not disappear from Israel. On that same piece of land, that little family plot, Obed would raise his son named Jesse. Then Jesse would raise his children, including a scrawny little boy named David, who would one day be told about his great-grandmother Naomi. And one day, one of David's great-great-great-granddaughters would return to the family home for a census. And she, like Naomi before her, would be blessed with a child who would be her rescuer. He would be born to serve others. But he would not simply be born to rescue Mary and Joseph's family from extinction, but the whole human race. He would be accused of all sorts of evil. He would be blamed 
for the consequences of others' sins, and he too would have his good name assailed from every quarter, and he too would stand silent before his accusers in order to show them kindness and salvation instead of judgment. And like his great-great-great-grandfather Obed, Jesus was born in Bethlehem to serve, to save, to rescue, to redeem. And like Obed, his birth would come through extraordinary circumstances. But unlike Obed, he had no earthly father. Jesus was God come in the flesh. And today we don't find him in Bethlehem. We don't find him anywhere on this earth. We find him in the scriptures. And there his acts of kindness and his service are recorded for us. There his love is preserved for all who desire to hear and to understand. And the question, of course, is how do we respond? Do you redouble your efforts to vindicate yourself by accusing others? Do you, do you find fault with him and accuse him of evil? Do you, do you blame him for the pain you've brought upon yourself? Do you drink poison hoping he will die? Or do you recognize and confess your guilt before a righteous God? Do you stand in awe of such kindness such love? Do you respond with self-righteous entitlement or with gratitude? Do you drop the pretense and humbly cry out for mercy? For those who do, those who cry out for mercy, they find the same mercy Naomi found. They find one who preserves their lives for all eternity. They find a God who overcomes our sin and our guilt and our bitterness through the gift of a child who is a servant and a redeemer. And it's not just in the scriptures that we behold the Savior. It's also in the Lord's Supper before us this morning. Here we have a reminder that the God of Naomi came into this world and he took on flesh and blood. We have a reminder that that he stood trial for his life. And he stood silent before his accusers. We have a reminder that he gave his life because that was the price of rescuing his people. In the bread and the wine before us, we have a picture of the greatest servant this world has ever known. More than that, we have a promise that those who place their trust in him will have their sins forgiven. They will have their lives restored and they will have an eternal inheritance in heaven, which can never pass away. And please join me in prayer. Almighty God, how is it that you should become our servant? We who have rebelled against you, we who have accused you, we who have blamed you, how is it that you would serve us? We stand in awe, we confess our guilt, we're humbled by your kindness and we are grateful for your love. Remove all bitterness from our hearts, we ask, and let us bask in the joy of knowing you, of being loved by you, of having a Redeemer who restores lives. We praise you for the greater Obed, Jesus Christ, who is God come into this world for our redemption. May his name be praised in our midst. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.